You're listening to TIP. For anyone who's kind of earlier in their life, number one, cash flow is king. I define financial freedom as having passive income, meaning not your active income, greater than your monthly expenses. I remember when I was making money early on, it was all about accumulation. What's my net worth? What do I have sitting in the bank? Think about it as an income statement item. How can I find things that pay me in my sleep? Do that and you will buy yourself financial freedom for the rest of your life. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with Tim Kalise. He's a serial entrepreneur and investor who's worked with Alex Ormosi and now applies what he's learned to help service business owners maximize their existing businesses. You'll learn how Tim raised over $325 million for a hedge fund in his 20s, how he got involved in the gym franchise business, how he got connected with Alex, the biggest mistakes he sees startups making, how he helps compress time for founders, and a whole lot more. Tim is a versatile entrepreneur, investor, consultant, and podcast host who helps service business owners uncover the profits hidden inside their existing business. More recently, Tim was one of four executive team members at Gym Launch alongside Alex and Leela Hormozzi, where he oversaw the development and launch of Elon, a machine learning SaaS company which grew from zero to 20 million ARR in six months. Currently, Tim helps make founders' dreams come true by implementing his product-to-profit framework as a sought-after number two to ambitious founders. And so, without further delay, let's dive into today's episode with Tim Kalise. Celebrating 10 years, you are listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network. Since 2014, we interviewed successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Now for your host... Patrick Donnelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me in today's studio is Mr. Tim Kalise. Tim, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Patrick. Appreciate you having me. I am happy to have you on here today. Thanks for your time. I just wanted to dig in and dive in and hear you've had a lot of different entrepreneurial adventures, but I kind of wanted to talk about your early days. You sounded like a young Alex P. Keaton from Family Ties. Tell us a little bit about what you were like growing up and just if you had any side hustles as a kid, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I was absolutely you know, a rock star socially from a very early age, meaning I was the kid who brought a briefcase to school in like fourth and fifth grade. So definitely, you know, that was foreshadowing to be, you know, killer with the ladies. So, you know, but I, I mimicked what I saw around me. My father was in the professional services. He was in banking. And so, you know, I just started to kind of pick up some of those mannerisms and, you know, most sons want to be like their dad. And that was the model that I had, which served me in so many great ways, which was, you know, I was embedded from an early age or indoctrinated for probably no better word, that I could pretty much do whatever I could do, that the sky was effectively the limit. Now, the interesting part for me was I skewed much more towards the entrepreneurial side early on rather than what I'll say, kind of the gladiator. You know, I want to go into the big arena, investment banker, you know, let's go kind of do deals. I like the idea of it, but I was very much kind of the softer personality. And so entrepreneurialism was kind of more of an attraction. And, and again, this is kind of the 80s and 90s where it wasn't entrepreneurialism as, as you know, 2024 as, uh, you know, as has come to be. So was always a problem solver, always a tinkerer. And so my first kind of entree to that world was in middle school, I pitched the head of my school on why we should have a boys lacrosse team. 
which we didn't have, but I spec'd out all the equipment. I did all the costing. I said, you know, here's the business plan effectively. Let's go do it. And of course he said no, you know, which was fine. But just to give you a a sense of that drive was always see a problem, solve a problem, kind of direct line to, to make that happen. And then it it kind of snowballed from there through college and and into my professional career. So growing up was like money, investing, entrepreneurship, was all that discussed at the dinner table? It was in high level, yes. And then I remember very clearly it was, I was 18. The first stock I bought, actually maybe I was 16, was Yahoo in the late 90s. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like at $300 $300 a share, which was probably the peak, peak, peak right before everything fell apart. So I I was encouraged to take small risks like that. Like I think I bought one share, but at least I understood the game and I understood what it meant to be to have money on the line and taking risk and watching it go from $250 a share down to you know 50. That was a real pain that I felt. And, and so I think I probably got drawn into that world through you know micro experiences like that, investing club, that kind of thing, you know, those types of things. That's awesome. So that first experience in the stock market and having a loss, I wanted to know how that affected you. My first experience was doubling my money. And I don't know that it was a positive thing, honestly, like in retrospect, I'm kind of curious, like having a loss and having that sting, how did that affect like how you've invested going forward? I think it informed, it removed some of my naivete very early on. Because I think before you kind of start the process or start to kind of put things at risk, put risk on the table. You think the stock market is just this thing, you put money in and it goes up, right? And my experience- You'll be the next Warren Buffett, right? Yeah, spot on. (laughs) Exactly. And so I I think it was a great experience because it put a little bit of that friction in my thinking to say, all right, you know, is this the right thing? What does an entry point look like? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Not just put money at risk and, and, you know, there's a pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. So you go off to college, Talk to me a little bit about some of these, the ventures that you did in college, because I know that you had a couple. I did. So my sophomore year in college, I went to school at Washington, D.C. And for anybody who's familiar with kind of the downtown area in D.C., what they call K Street, most people commute in from Virginia and Maryland. And then by nine, 10 o'clock at night, everybody leaves after dinner. And as a college student, that's when things just start to get interesting. Right. So, you know, 7-Eleven was probably the only option for us in school if we wanted something, you know, to drink or anything like that. And so our two of my roommates and I on a Tuesday said, you know, there's got to be a better way. Maybe we can, you know, we are our core customer. What can we do? And in 24 hours, we created a website. We called it campussnacks.com. We went to BJ's the next day and got cookies and ice cream and a few other things. And we started a late night snack delivery business within about two days. And so the founding was interesting because it solved a problem we knew acutely because it was our problem. But what I learned thereafter, which was the most important lesson of this whole thing, and it took off like a rocket ship, was how do you market? I'm a finance guy and I can come up with ideas, but marketing and promotion was really a blind spot for me. And serendipitously, one of my two partners and I happened to be taking human sexuality at the time in college. And after one of our classes, we went up to the professor and he had said, you know, they're trying to do these government programs for, you know, doing community programs and things like that. And he happened to highlight the focus of the time was safe sex practices. So we went up to him at the end of the class one day and said, so we have this thing, the late night stack delivery business, and we have your core customer 
when it matters most. He ended up donating 10,000 free condoms to our company. And so we gave one with every order. And so we went from hearing crickets in the beginning, you know, a little bit of growth here and there just by word of mouth, to we became the company where you get a condom with every order. And we took that business from what, two nights a week, open three hours a night, to when I sold it to my partner, it was a seven day a week, and it moved into a, a 15,000 square foot distribution center with over 200 SKUs delivering all around downtown DC. That's awesome. So you had a successful exit for yourself, right? I got out too early, probably in retrospect, but I was a college student and my partner really wanted to run with it. And so I sold my third of the business at some point along the way. But it showed me the practical side of speed to money, have an idea, how can we test it? How can we get it into the marketplace as quickly as possible? And number two, knowing your core audience. We knew exactly who we were catering to. We knew what their pains were. We know what their aspirations were. And so we had the core avatar dialed in really, really quickly. And you didn't spend time writing a business plan. It was just like, here's the idea. Let's launch it. We did not. We just go to market, little money in. If it failed, it failed. But we had a pretty good idea that, you know, people were going to want what we had. The marketing side was the, the real linchpin issue, though. It was we figured out a way to not just hand out free samples. It really did take off like wildfire pretty quickly. I had a similar experience. I was in the entrepreneurial club in college and did the same kind of thing. We made subs, delivered them late at night. It was door to door though. It was like knocking on doors. And it was just like a, like a semester project though. It was just almost like a contest to see how it went. And uh, yeah, it went well. I mean, it obviously went really well for you, it sounds like, and, and really turned into a viable business. So that's really cool. I wanted to step ahead and talk about after getting out of college, you're entering into the work world. That transition can be difficult for a lot of people. It's hard to find the right fit, I think, like right out of school. I think it's very rare to find the right fit right out of the gate. So talk to me a little bit about your experience, like what you did after graduation. Yeah. So my experience right out of college, actually right, even right before I graduated, was I worked at a large bank. I worked at a division of Citigroup, partially because I had this nagging feeling inside of me that there was supposed to be a way that I was supposed to progress professionally in the world. And now I had all these entrepreneurial endeavors, but it felt kind of like, that's fun. That's kind of child's play. But when are you going to grow up and kind of do the do the thing, you know, for for real. And so I think I didn't realize it at the time, but that had a, a really big influence, a, a, quite an impact on me at that time. So in your mind, like, what did that look like? What did real work, what did you think your career was supposed to look like? It looked like, you know, and I think trappings of the, you join a company, you're there for 30 years, you know, ascend through the ranks. That was, I think the the paradigm that I had in my head was start as a low man on a totem pole, getting coffee and, you know, answering the phones. And one day you too could be a VP kind of idea. And that very well kind of worn path was one that I, for whatever reason, was nagging at me at that time. Like that's what I was supposed to do. And after about six months and I at this organization and we're within this team, the options were you can effectively become a stockbroker or you can leave. And I remember very vividly, I was walking home to my apartment and I did the the mental exercise of let me run out this path of becoming a stockbroker. Do I like the destination? Effectively, if everything goes as planned, would I be pleased with where I ended up? And it felt like nails on a chalkboard to me. And so I was like, okay, this is, I'm not long for this world. 
And I was so fortunate, Patrick, to have a mentor at that time who I went to when I said, I'm not sure if this is for me. And he said, okay, what would you like to be doing? And just for context, this was right around, this was like the 2003, 2004 timeframe. And at that time, the smartest of the smart, the kind of like what entrepreneurship is today, hedge funds were the financial equivalent of that at this time. That's where everybody, all the kind of cowboys were going. And I said, I want to be playing in that world. It's entrepreneurial. Smartest people are going there. It's kind of where everybody, you know, where, where all the action is. And I was introduced to a guy who was starting a hedge fund, had no money to speak of. I mean, like a rounding error. He didn't or you didn't or collectively... Collectively, I mean, I just, you know, I think we had $100,000 of investable assets, which is literally nothing to start a, a company like that. But I said, he said, I want to be a portfolio manager. I don't want to talk to clients. I don't want to build a business. I just want to do my thing. If you want to build a business around me, have at it. We'll share the economics. And I said, I need you in New York twice a year. And I need you to write an investor letter once a quarter. Other than that, I'll just leave me on my own devices. And he said, fair. So I moved to Birmingham, Alabama, of all places, a kid from New York who went to DC to move to the South. And you're how old at this point? 21, 22. I was like right out of college. I was literally graduated and, and then moved down a couple months, you know, six months later. So graduated in May, moved the following January, January 1st is I think when I started. And we subletted a single office in the back of a CPA's building in Birmingham, not two pennies to rub together. Basically wasn't getting paid and said, you know what, this is all upside. We'll see, you know, let's give it six months and see if we can make it work. And the first six months went decently well. We had enough momentum to keep it going. And over the next three years, I raised $325 million for that fund. Crisscrossed the country, met the biggest investors, the ones that you read on the list of you know guys that make a billion dollars a year. We had some of those guys as investors to us. So entrepreneurship meets finance meets, now I have a real job that can I pay me real money? And that was the rocket ship that I was strapped to and right out of the college effectively. There's a lot I want to unpack there. So what was the thesis behind the fund? What was the guy that you teamed up with? What was his strategy? So as a naive investor, I thought going in that our objective was to maximize returns. He who can drive the most returns will win this game. Our strategy was actually to hit a lot of singles. So our thesis was, it was a long short equity hedge fund, which basically is like a mutual fund but you can bet against you know, stocks as well. Stock prices could go down. And so we said, we are never going to be up 50% a year, but we will never be down 50%. Our goal is to create 1% returns every month like clockwork. So we were a consistency thesis. You're the Pete Rose of uh, hedge funds. A hundred percent. And at the time I was like, that's kind of boring. Like I understand it conceptually, but like, when are we going to go do something cool that I can go and say, you know, we, we had a great month or what have you. And we stumbled into the ideal situation for two reasons. One is when we were small, as with anyone who's ever raised money before or done anything, you have to get the ball rolling. So you take $25,000 of capital, 50000 100000 until you start to build it to be something bigger. Well, those funds typically came from investment retirement assets of high net worth individuals. So we manage your IRA or, or what have you. People who really didn't want to lose their money and only wanted kind of small, consistent appreciation. So that worked out perfectly. And so we were able to get a lot of retirement assets very quickly, which helped us to continue to build a base that we could get larger and larger capital 
allocations from larger investors. Well, those institutional investors we ultimately got in front of, the biggest allocations we got were from insurance companies. And at the time, I didn't realize how that the financial model worked, but you pay your premium. You don't need all that money. That has to be invested somewhere. And there's smarter people than I to figure out how much money they need and when, but they would give us the capital. And if they were like, you can grow at 1% a month, that's phenomenal. Our actuarial tables say, if we can make 6% a year like clockwork, we're happy. You can give us 12. I'll give you as much money as we can we can put together. And so we were able to get $25 million, $50 million allocations from a couple of insurance companies. And that is what juiced our capital towards the end. So $325 million being raised by a pretty young guy. I want to hear about that. Like, How did you gain the trust of you know people that are managing millions and millions of dollars of assets? That's I had the same experience. And I look young, you know, I really looked young like when I was in my early 20s. So it was a lot of lot of hurdles, a lot of like, eh, eh, you know, so I, I'm curious what your experience was like. You obviously did very well at it. Yeah. And getting back to where we started the conversation, when I was younger, I was the kid who was always more comfortable in front of adults than I was talking to my peers. And that was a little bit of foreshadowing to when I started this process. There was just something about the way that I spoke to prospects. And I basically made two promises. I said, we're never going to lose your money. So you don't have to worry about at night, you know, making sure your money is safe. And number two, you have my number. I will always answer your call. And that sounds simple. And it was. But for context, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is where the, the hedge fund industry was where all the cowboys were living. And the tone at that time that a lot of these managers had was, hey, investors, you should be lucky to put your money with me. Like I'm doing you the favor. And that was because these guys had big egos. And I just said, I'm new to this game. I think they're doing me the favor by giving their trade. Like it just seemed backwards to me. And so I just said, listen, here's here's how it's going to work. I'm going to write you a letter every week. You're going to make sure you know exactly what's happening. And we built a lot of the initial capital in the early days, starting with $25,000 and then we earn the trust. We actually get second, third, and fourth allocations from a lot of those folks. And that is actually how we, in, I do a lot of work in the software business. We call it land and expand. You make that initial sale and then it just continues to grow over time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. 
Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So it was both retail and institutional investors that you were raising capital from? Yeah, in the beginning, it was all retail because we're not big enough to get to meet the mandates and things like that. Once we got to 25 million, then most institutions can't be more than 10% of your fund which allowed us to get, you know, two million, two and a half million from some small institutions that got us to 50. And you, you know, it's quadratic as most growth, you know, in the beginning, it's really hard to get the ball rolling. And then once you do, the momentum really did take us. And then we got 50 and $100 billion allocations at the end. That's fascinating. So that was around 2000. That was 2004 to 2007. So talk to me about that. So we know what happened in 2008. How did you deal with that time period? October of 2007, we made a decision to call all of our investors together because over the prior six months, we saw that the market was behaving, what I'm, I'm going to use the word irrationally. It was not a normal market climate, and there's lots of reasons why that was. So we, as managers, either had to change our stripes and adapt, which sounds positive, like adaptation is a good thing, but it really was we needed to go and do something that we didn't fully believe in. So we didn't. And so we started to underperform what the market was doing. Had you moved to cash at that point? We were effectively dollar neutral. So we just didn't find a lot of opportunities at that time, just to be really clear. This was when Ben Bernanke, the Fed chair, was starting to say, you know, the early indications of mortgage defaults in all day mortgages were going to be contained. This is not a big deal. And it was going to be a huge deal. Everybody kind of, when you dug into it, really understood, you know, you can watch the big short to see a little bit of uh, the behind the scenes there. But what we saw, the reason what our version of that was, and I remember the Wall Street Journal in the summer of 2007 ran a story that said, effectively, Apple was going to be a target of a leverage buyout by a private equity firm for something like $500 billion. It was the largest deal ever in the history of, and it had no chance of actually happening. The reason why that's relevant is because when we were looking at companies that we thought their stock prices would go down, these companies started to get interest from PE under rumors. And so if we bet against it, stock prices would pop. We didn't find a lot of opportunities to offset kind of that part of our portfolio. And so we effectively just went to cash by the end of, in the third quarter was when that ultimately kind of came to be. In October of 2007, we said, I gathered all of our investors together, said the world is kind of crazy right now from our perspective. We've gone to cash. We are going to waive our fees effective immediately, but you have to leave your money with us and we can use it. We can go and deploy it whenever we feel like the market, the environment is now kind of more conducive to what we're doing. That was option A. Or option B is you can take your money. 
And 97% of the people said, you guys have lost your touch. You don't know what you're talking about. All these other people say that everything's going to be fine. We'll take our money. And so 1231 of 07, I wired, gave back, released all $325 million voluntarily. And we returned all of our capital. Wow. So that was the end of the fund. That was it. Wound it up by the end of June of 2008. Fund was closed down. We went through tax and audit and all of those types of things. And and I was a free agent again. So I'm curious, your partner, what is he still managing money? Like how did he, he, he you guys made the right call, you, you know, you were, but it's not what your investors wanted to hear. They wanted the consistent singles. Yeah. That's fascinating. They, the majority of them, sounds like all of them wanted to get their cash back. Yeah, it was, they all did effectively. And it was interesting because the hedge fund world and investing, investment management in general is a, what have you done for me lately kind of business. That's the same Bernie Madoff time period too, right? Yeah, it was a little, right, right around that same time. He kind of, that all fell apart shortly after, but yes, that was kind of when he was on his, his great ascent and was a big player in the industry. But yeah, so although we had done very, very well over the course of the couple of years, it didn't really buy us a lot of confidence, to be quite frank. You know, at that time, people kind of said, you know, other other folks think that they can play well in this industry, you know, in this market. And if you can't, I appreciate everything you've done, but we'll take our ball and go home. And luckily, in the moment, it was one of the most painful things that had happened to me at that time because I put my blood, sweat and tears into raising this money and you know, right when we were going to monetize it and all of that kind of stuff, you know, we get paid very handsomely. It all kind of stopped. But long-term, I kept an asset, which was probably ended up being more important, which was the Rolodex of those investors that came back at the end of 2008 and said, I should have listened to you. You were a good steward for years and I regret not heeding your advice. And so I still keep some of those relationships to this day. I remember it was probably the summer of 2007. I had a, a friend who was a mortgage broker. And I remember him saying that he he felt like he could literally print money. And, you know, he was doing all these, whatever, you know, the liar loans and uh, subprime loans. And I just remember thinking at that time, this is not going to end well. The writing, you know, the clues were all there, I think. It's just hard to see it. I think, you know, the aspect of greed and whatever is just a big part of human psychology. And we just want more and more. Yeah, absolutely. It was fine on a personal that I had, I had bought a lot to build a house in, in Birmingham. And again, I'm 22, 23 at that time. And I remember going to the bank and I didn't have, you know, I mean, all of our money was basically made on bonuses effectively at the end of the year, depending on how we did. And I remember submitting the paperwork. And again, I'd never, this was the first house I ever bought. And I think I made my base salary was like $45,000 a year. I mean, it wasn't anything kind of crazy. And they came back and said, you're pre-approved for two and a half million dollars. And I went, holy mackerel, this is so easy. And then I called my parents. I was like, I, I got a two and a half million dollar loan. And they're like, this is not normal. <laughs> so just so you know, but it got me thinking of it kind of when all of this was starting to kind of coalesce around the market going off the, off the rails, these, all of these like little experiences all lined up to say, you know, this is, this doesn't smell right. And luckily we heated our, our gut and stick to our morals. So you're ready for a new chapter at this point. I know that you, you got into the franchise world a, a little bit after that. So talk to me about how you decided to get into the franchise world and the specific industry that you ended up in. Yeah. So we were in Birmingham, my now wife, I had convinced somehow to move down and we lived in Birmingham with no family around or anything like that. The work was really the only reason I was there. And so when we shut the company down, 
We moved back to the Northeast, which is where my wife and I are both from. We moved to Cape Cod, Massachusetts, and there were no hedge funds in that area. There were, you know, kind of not a lot of opportunities. And we said, one of the pieces of advice my dad gave me very early on, and I remembered it was choose where you want to live first and then figure it out from there. And so we said, all right, you know, my in-laws are there, which, and they're fantastic people. Let's move there and then I'll figure it out. My wife and I were division one athletes. That's how we met in college. And so fitness was always kind of important to us. And I've being a self-proclaimed kind of nerd, I always loved computers. I love technology, all that kind of stuff. And my wife, when we moved, Googled personal training in the town where we were thinking of moving. And there was a banner ad for this company that said automated personal training 24-7, 365. And so she clicked on it and said, and it was this new concept that basically took the person out of personal training and replaced it with technology. It was prescriptive strength training. And so she showed this to me and she's like, super interesting. I'm going to go take a tour. So she did. And she said, this is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's kind of pretty neat. And I called the founders. I found their their information. And I said, are you taking investors? You know, this is kind of a neat concept. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. We're fully funded. We just closed our, I think it was Series A at that time, but we're starting a franchise. Do you want to become a developer? So we became members and checked it out, Was really loved it. And so we became franchise developers under this kind of new franchise, mostly because it was a technology company mixed with kind of this idea of we liked fitness and, and giving back to the market where we wanted to live. We wanted people to be healthier and, and you know, kind of the the moral thing that that was related to that. And so we got into the franchise business and built from built a seven figure gym business over the next couple of years. So was it, were there physical locations? You said it was technology based. So tell me like how, as a gym member, like what did it look like? So the concept was, if you remember the old universal machine, the single machine with all the arms and legs on it, the initial prototype was that wired up with sensors and put a screen on the front. So think about the experience when most people walk into a gym, 90% of people either do cardio only because weights are a scary thing and I don't know what to do and that's for other people. And the 10% that do it, most of the 10%, 9% of them do it wrong and they get injured, they go out too fast, all those types of things. And so we solve for all of that. So the experience was a physical location in usually a strip mall or somewhere nearby in a neighborhood center. You would walk in 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it would say, you know, good afternoon, Patrick. Today, we're going to do these seven different exercises. We're going to do it at this weight and we're going to do it at this pace. So it took all the thinking out. You didn't have to do exercise selection. You didn't have to worry about form and pacing and all of those types of things. And it was all optimized, understanding where you are today and where you want to go in over the next year. And we took that into account. So it was a software and a hardware business and physical locations. And we ended up the franchise ended up having about 150 locations in 29 states over the, the next kind of three or four years. And the, it was Coco Fit? Yeah, K-O-K-O Fit Club. K-O-K-O. That's right. Yeah, it means one-to-one or individual in Japanese. Okay, interesting. So you started with one, you ended up with a total of... We, we ended up with eight at one point. Okay. And do you still, are they still around or you still operate them or how did that unfold over the years? Yeah. So we grew it to eight. And then we can circle back to this. I'm now a very famous YouTube influencer in the business community. And it gave me the advice to go and sell my gyms and go do something else. So that was when I met Alex and Lilo Hermosi for the first time in 2018. He told me to go sell my gyms. So we exited in 2018, owning our own units at that point. So let's get into that. How did you guys connect? What was, I know a little bit about Alex. It's hard to not, you know, he's pretty uh, ubiquitous everywhere. And 
you know, has done very, very well. So how did you guys meet and connect and why did you listen to him? What was it about him that like, you know, you decided to take his advice? So the strength of our, of the franchise developer, the franchisor of Coco was they were phenomenal visionaries on the equipment and the software side. They were technologists. The business model, in my opinion, could have been better. And so as we were developing these kind of five and then eight locations, we ended up acquiring another three unit chain. So we got to eight locations and I said, I understand the dynamics of this business. We need to do some other things above and beyond kind of what other clubs had been doing. And so I was really tinkering with the business model and I did it from a boots on the ground. This is what I'm seeing. We're talking about basic things like we wanted to have multiple tiers of, of membership. We wanted to have different packages to suit different people. We got into small group training. This was the rise of CrossFit was around the same time. Peloton wasn't on the scene yet, but some of the like digital fitness brands were starting to come up at that time. And so we introduced some technology into like heart rate monitors and things like that. And I was kind of playing with all of this. And then one of the other franchisees said, I saw an ad for this guy, Alex. He owns this company called Gym Launch. And I had a call with him and he said, it's kind of interesting. You should have a call with him too. And so I called him and I said, you know, I have no idea what this is all about. I'm in a franchise, but what do we want to do? And he gave some advice to us and we went and implemented it and it worked out really well for us. And so this was 2018. Alex's whole, I mean, at that time, his thing was advising gym owners how to become more business-minded, profitable, market things better. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the very quick background on Alex was he was a gym owner. He's He went to Vanderbilt, was actually in the intelligence space. He worked for basically an NSA level company, you know, organization. Didn't want to do that, was not his cup of tea. Moved to Southern California. He'd always been a gym guy. I mean, you can see just his stature. He was a, he's been a power lifter for a long time. Said, I wanted to own a gym. If I'm an owner gym, I'm going to go to the most competitive market in the country because if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. Packed up his car, drove cross country, went to Southern California, opened a gym. And if you see, for those that have kind of seen some of his stuff, there's a picture of him like sleeping on the the floor of his gym. That was the early parts of kind of when this was. And he figured out that he was really good at sales. So we built a bunch of gyms and then his mom got sick and a few other things. He exited owning gyms and he started to fly out to other people's gyms. And this is where gym launch comes from under the model of if you're going to open a gym, you can hire me to come out to your facility. I will sell the first round of members of yours. And the deal is I keep all the upfront cash and I hand you a member that has agreed to pay you for the next 12 months. Those are, that was the basic economics. And he would run the ads. He would set the sales appointments. He would take the sales appointments. He would sell the people, collect the money, the whole nine yards. And so he did it for one and it worked. Then he did it for two and then three and then demand came. So he started to build a team of people who were flying cross country, staying in the extended stays and all of that. And then it got to a breaking point where all of the people on his team went, I'm going to be on the road 52 weeks a year. My wife's going to divorce me. I hate that. Like, you know, life kind of actually happened. And so he shut it all down. And that is when somebody came to him and said, he canceled one of his his upcoming trips. And the person said, I really need you. Can you just tell me what you would have done if you were here? Just give me the instruction manual effectively. And that is how Alex went from physically selling to creating an IP business, a licensing business. And he said, yeah, here's what I would do. Take my playbook and see if it works. And it did. This is awesome. Like I can go and sell information instead of selling me getting on a plate. And that was the beginning part of how do you take a gym 
and implement a business system that allowed you to make more money than you otherwise but would before. And it had, and he had every playbook, how to write the ads, the ads to run, the systems to work, all of those types of things. And it worked very well and went from zero to basically $40 million a year in revenue in two and a half years. And they have since sold Jim Launch. Yeah, we sold two, a little over two years ago. Yeah, we sold two thirds to a private equity fund. So he's got, his book is $100 million offers, I believe. What is it about him, you know, his belief systems or his skill sets that has made him this phenomenal entrepreneur? Yeah. So the basics of why gym launch was so effective was if you think about the gym industry and go back, you know, 10 years or even five, most gyms to acquire a customer did some kind of free offering, try a free class, a free day, a free week. You know, even Planet Fitness today is, you know, a dollar down, $10 a month. It was all low, low ticket. And Alex had the vision to create a business that had a high ticket front end offer because it allowed you, it gave you the cash, the fuel to do a lot of things that were obviously kind of that virtuous cycle of of high ticket. So he launched a six week transformation challenge was the effectively the offer. And it was $600. So part of the gym launch concept was not just he was really good at sales and advertising. It was we now had a vehicle to drive cash flow into, drive cash into a gym, which are chronically undercapitalized. That was the first domino to fall. So what was so unique about him? Number one was he was a visionary in the space. He also knew the gym industry inside and out because he's been doing it since he was in high school. But he understood the industry. He understood the pain points. And he understood what needed to happen. And he had the vision to kind of buck the trend and do something that everyone else thought he was crazy to do. That's kind of from the business perspective. The reality is in this market, he is one of the smartest people I've ever met. He is singularly focused and driven like no one I've ever met. And from a kind of cognitive dissonance, like your brain doesn't understand what's happening. He's as smart as an NSA, you know, kind of level guy. And he looks like a lumberjack. You wouldn't expect a kind of like PE level, you know, nine figure guy to wear Crocs and a flannel shirt on stage everywhere he goes. He's a walking, talking pattern interrupt. I mean, that's the reality, but he is so sharp. And my experience with him, I worked, you know, basically shoulder to shoulder with him for a couple of years. He has an ability to distill the things that are, you know, we talk about kind of Pareto's law, the 80-20 rule. You focus on the 20% that yields the 80% of value. He has like the 99%, 1%. He is wired to understand like, if I just hit this one thing, it's going to move mountains. We use this phrase and he uses it quite a bit, which is small hinges move big doors. He was myopically focused on the things that he understood to be the only things that matter. He talks about it today. It's like the season of no. I worked alongside of him during his season of no, and he did nothing but work through making sure that Gym Launch became as big as it could be and as impactful as it could be. Say more about that, the season of, season of no. I'm not familiar with that. So he talks about this idea of effectively shutting out the outside world to create an extreme level of focus. Do you want to come hang out? Do you want to have dinner? No. Do you want to come and watch the game? No. Do you mind giving me five minutes for coffee? No. It was probably close to 18 months that he did nothing else other than he didn't really see anyone outside of work. It was like, I am, this is my time. Striking while the iron is hot. And unlike anyone I've ever seen, he understood exactly what needed to happen. And he built walls around his attention 
and no one could get to him. It was, it was unbelievable. And it was, it broke so many beliefs for me because I thought I knew what productivity looked like. It was like child's play before that. It fundamentally rewired what speed was, what focus was. It's probably one of the best experiences I've ever had, you know, as far as kind of a professional development experience. So you sold the eight gyms and then what, what happened next? You then teamed up with him to help him with gym launch? So the, the transition there was after I spoke to him about our business model in January of 2018, alongside the consulting business that, that we just talked through, Gym Launch also started a company called Prestige Labs. It was a supplement brand underneath the Gym Launch umbrella. And in January of 2018, they launched a, like a sales competition. I think it was 2018. And the top 10 sellers of Prestige Labs won a trip a pay trip down to meet Alex and Layla and have a consulting day. That was the, the payoff. And I was in one of those 10. So fast forward six weeks, we all fly down, we go work out at his home gym and we're having the day and we're sitting at his dining table at his house. He had Layla and, and I think there were eight or 10 of us and everybody going around. It was like, all right, what's your biggest problem that you can, I like, let's solve it right now it was basically an ad hoc consulting arrangement with that, that he was doing. And it was, how do I hire people? How do I train my people? You know, all of these kind of very tactical things. And it came to me and I'm like, I don't have any of these questions because I really like, I'm not passionate about the fitness business. And he goes, you should sell your gyms. You're far too smart for doing what you're doing. And to use his phrasing, he goes, you're in the wrong opportunity vehicle. And I said, okay, I kind of needed the permission to, to get out. And so I basically sold my gyms and this was like February or March of, I believe it was 2018. And then June, my phone rings and it's a number I don't recognize. And for whatever reason, I picked it up and he goes, Hey, this is Alex. Or Rosie, hi, is there something I can help you with? And he goes, I, I remember our conversation and I am thinking about doing that. I have a, an opportunity and here's all the information. Here's how I'm going to structure it. What do you think? And I said, do you want me to tell you you're right? Or do you want me to tell you what I think you should do? And I guess that was, I, this wasn't Alex, like on the pedestal, Alex, that everybody knows now. It was like just some guy. And I said, I think you're completely off base. He goes, interesting. Tell me. And I said, I think you should do this, this, and this. And he goes, that's so much better. Thanks. Hang up the phone. And I think it was like a month later, he called. It was like, we're building out the executive team here. This thing is going well. Do you have any interest in? And I think I actually applied. I think I was following him for something. And he said, you know, we're hiring a CFO or a finance person or something. And I said, hey, you know, would love to do something with you. You know, I've enjoyed our conversations. And he goes, well, I can, there's this like business development role that I have. And I have a CFO role. And I said, I'm not an accountant by trade. I know enough to be dangerous. And he goes, fair enough. I'm going to hire a CFO. Do you want to come over and basically help lead the company on a business development perspective? And I'm like, great, perfect. So June, I started and the rest was history. I basically, it was strapped to a rocket ship. Gym launch was going from zero to, I think when they were on pace, they do a million a month or a million and a half a month at that point. And then we launched Prestige Labs to 25 million a year in revenue. And then the following year, I built a software product underneath the gym launch umbrella, which was my pet project. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Has he since gone on to do the same model, but in different industries, like outside of the gym world? Yeah, so he short transition on kind of how things came to be that software product that I mentioned and I can explain why it was relevant, but the, it, it was an automated lead gen software. So imagine somebody goes to your website or they fill out a form and, you know, first name, last name, email address, phone number in the fitness business specifically, that is a very weak point in the fitness business process to get that lead to show up in the facility for sales consultation. Working leads is one of those things that is like oil and water, you know, for, for most gym owners, they just want to be training. They don't want to do the business. And so the numbers were one out of eight leads would ever show up in a facility. Seven out of eight just disappeared into the ether. When we started with gym launch and even when I was running my gyms, we used to be able to get leads for 25 cents in 2012, 13, 14, 15. By 2018, 2019, it was $25 just to give you a sense of scale. So when you're paying 25 cents in one out of seven, you know, seven out of eight disappear, you can still, and you're selling the one into a $600 program, the numbers work. You're paying $25, you care a lot. And so we said, we tried to teach gym owners how to work leads. We told them the business model. We gave them the staffing model. We gave them the scripts. They just didn't do it. So we said, we're going to solve the problem for them. So we built a automated lead gen product that took the lead, nurtured it, got them scheduled and got them to show up for a sales appointment. Is this via via email or is it how how was that structured? SMS. But I had a two-person data science team and a 30-person software development team that built this product. And we launched it in January of 2020. 
officially. January happened, started to take off. February, March, you can kind of see where this is going. Then we ran headlong into COVID and we were, we trained the model to get people to walk into a gym. Well, of course, everybody went online almost overnight, effectively overnight. And so we retrained the model to get a, a prospect to show up for a Zoom consultation because that's where all the coaches were. That took us about a week to get that right and trained. And after the numbers started to look good, like, okay, we're, we're getting leads to show up to Zoom calls with coaches and with gym owners and stuff like that to do virtual coaching. It took us about another three seconds after that to look at each other and went, we just got a web lead to show up to a virtual consultation via Zoom. We can do this for any industry as long as it's high ticket. So that was one of, so then we started to work with, we, we ended up in 30 different industries over the course of 2019. Anything that's high ticket from med spas to float tanks, to acupuncture, to Invisalign, as long as it's high ticket and recurring, you were in our market. And we grew that business. We were doing 1.7 million a month inside of six months with that product, uh, MRR. So 20 million a year ARR. So through that experience, what that also allowed us to do was consult with all these different industries, 30 different industries. And Alice was phenomenal at just watching him almost like break the businesses apart and rebuild them in a similar fashion as he did with gyms. And it was like, okay, this is really interesting. And then they started to, we basically redid how a lot of these companies worked. And so he then moved after the gym industry, then moved into what is now acquisition.com, which is basically coaching and partnering with service businesses, primarily service and info businesses. And that's kind of the early stages of acquisition.com. Fascinating. And so you've since gone on to advise startups, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Alex is phenomenal. So Alex is one of the best visionaries I've ever seen, great at business models, et cetera. And Layla is one of, if not the best operators. She's a talent. Love both of them. They are both independently amazing at what they do. Their talent would be wasted with someone who's doing a million dollars a year in revenue. They are like 10, 2,500 million, like let's go where the big levers are. I know myself and I get excited about, and maybe this is probably this is probably something early in my childhood that you could trace back to, but this like David and Goliath idea of I care deeply about helping the small guy shift the balance of power in their favor. And so I actually have a podcast called Leveling the Field, and that is to speak to this idea of how do I stack the deck and have a lot of the new entrepreneurs that I can work with not face the same level of failure that uh, that typically is out there in the marketplace. And so I specialize in the sub $3 million, $3 to $5 million a year revenue businesses. Alex does the bigger stuff. And so we are still close, but I focus on the smaller end of the market. I love that. Kind of the underdog. I love the smaller market that uh, I think it's like the backbone of America, you know, small businesses. So you know, in in school, obviously, I mean, I have I have a teenager now, and you, know, you think about like the grades you get, and it's like, well, you know, I got an A in this, an A in this, and I got a B in this, and the first inclination is, well, how do we get the B to an A? Translated to, how do I take a weakness and somehow turn it into a strength? And this is, you know, everybody believes something different, but I went from trying to learn all sorts of new skills and become something that I wasn't to just stick into my knitting and people systems and run like. If I woke up every day to run big teams, I would hate my, I just wouldn't be excited about it. Layla, you cannot, like, it is an inquageable thirst to get in front of people and manage teams. And it's just not my forte. I love product. I love 
pricing. I love the kind of the, the use of my, I have a 10 year old son who loves Legos. I like taking the Legos apart and rebuilding them into something, something hopefully more optimized. And that's where I get the great fortune to live each and every day. That's awesome. I love that. So when you're going in and, and working with some of these businesses, they're recurring. Is it still like kind of subscription, recurring revenue type businesses? Yeah. My belief is, and I think we've all seen this in some way, shape or form, you can sell something to someone one time. That's marketing, acquisition, et cetera. Getting someone to stay long-term is both a trickier prospect proposition, but driving LTV is just where I'm like, I'm just wired to do it. Understanding that the hardest part of the whole thing is to acquire the customer. If you can acquire the relationship and then monetize the relationship over time, you have a great chance of actually creating incredible economic wealth for yourself and a lot of value for, for the customers that you want to serve. And so that's where I live. Memberships, subscriptions, anything with recurring revenue or businesses that want to install recurring revenue in their business. So give me some examples of some of the types of companies you're working with. So I have a non-medical home care business in the Northeast. I'm helping them both on that business. But what I came to realize very quickly and why I, I partnered with them with the founder was he had created all of the playbooks and SOPs to actually launch a very high performing, high margin non-medical home care business. So we took all the IP and put it in its own wrapper. And now we sell that as a course and a consulting arrangement, things like that. We think that business will go from zero to will hopefully cross a million in revenue with like 90% margins in 2024. That didn't exist a year ago. So I have that. I have a a technology business in the real estate space, pure software. So I, I work with them pretty pretty closely. I have someone in the podcast space who's in the production acquisition space. So probably a little bit of like, I get bored easily, probably if you trace it all the way back, but I like the challenge of you know working with all these various types of companies. I have a, a company actually in Australia that I'm talking to right now, who's, they do golf simulators and experiences, and they're trying to figure out how do I build a membership business there? I have someone who's in the, uh, is starting actually relaunching a company that helps pair large companies with event spaces. It's actually a big issue, I guess, right now. Think almost like trying to do like a restaurant kind of like resi, but how do you actually do that for large events? So we're looking at that as a, as a business model across the board, but it, they all have some basic fundamental building blocks that we instill in each of those businesses. So you're not getting bored for sure. No. I love the challenge. And quite frankly, what it allows me to do is to understand and continue to drive my thinking. And then I can look at like, how does it apply to these different industries? Because there's actually a lot of similarities in the process, even if the product is a little bit different. I'm just curious, have you done Strength Finders 2.0? Have you ever done that? I've done most of them. I haven't done Strength Finders in, in a number of years. In a number of You've got to be a learner, I would think. It seems like you love to learn and assimilate information pretty quickly and easily. And I think for me, I was a builder for a long time, you know, as kind of that kind of avatar. And now I've kind of shifted the balance to be I'm kind of equal parts builder, but also mentor coach. I think I'm now finding a little bit more balance in those two things. So I can both learn, package and implement gets me very excited every day. Yeah. So when you're coming in and working with the company initially, what are some of the biggest mistakes you're seeing them make? So I use some of the same principles that we built Gym Launch on. So one of them being profitable acquisition. So many companies right now don't 
think about how they acquire, how they can acquire a customer at a profit. So let me break that down for you. What that means is in very simple terms, most people look at advertising and promotion as an expense. You might call it an investment, but usually a long dated investment. I spend a hundred dollars today and my LTV is a thousand dollars. I'll get my money back over time. What we install immediately is we understand what our customer acquisition cost is and we understand how we're going to scalably acquire the customer. And then we have a product that first buying decision pays us back for that acquisition. And ideally the first one is one to one. And then our primary metric is a two to one ratio. So they pay for that customer and the next one. The real estate software business that I mentioned earlier, their LTV, their lifetime value of a customer will ultimately be somewhere in the 10 to $25,000 range. But being a startup, it's like, great, we'll take $25,000 over the next five years. Well, fantastic. But what about cash today? So we have put in place, we, we believe our customer acquisition costs will level out at about $100 per paid user customer. So we now have a $299 front-end offer that we are converting at a very high rate. Is it the end of the world? No. Is it going to pay us back and more? Yes. And so what we're doing is we're basically siphoning, you know, circling those same dollars over and over again. And now we effectively have an unlimited marketing budget. Right. That's interesting. So are you doing all aspects of a company? Are you looking at their cash flow, their marketing, their lead generation, operations? Like, are you breaking everything down or do you kind of focus on things like lead generation and marketing? So we do a diagnostic. I, I run a diagnostic program basically across the organization, understand where the biggest opportunities are. I am not, I can't be the best in the world at everything. And that was something I kind of realized very early on. What I am very good at is to use that Lego analogy is breaking the company apart and putting the the bricks back together again. And I have people both on my team as well as people that I work with in, in concert who are, if you want to run a funnel, for example, I'm not the best funnel builder. I'm not the best headline writer, all those types of copywriter, et cetera. But I have people who are probably the best in their field at each of those. And so we'll go and, and work with them kind of in a collaborative format. So yeah, I'm smart enough to know what I'm good at. And it really is the structural pieces. I build the skeleton, the tactical execution. I usually will go to the expert in each of those areas, like affiliates. I have one of the best affiliate marketers in the marketplace today to build all of our affiliate programs. I have, like I said, you know, funnel builders, I have copywriters, I have video folks, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of have built a, a bench, if you will. I mean, small businesses are desperately in need of something like this because they're wearing all the hats when they're often, you know, I talked to a guy yesterday who's running a, you know, it's a service blue collar kind of business, but he was doing everything. And when an employee calls off, you know, he, he then <laughs> steps in. So you don't have time to do some of these things that you're, you're talking about. It's so interesting you, you use that example because that is how I, that's how the conversation will start, which is like, what's broken? Just tell me, give the, it's, Lift up the rock and tell me what's, you know, what's under there. And they'll say something like that. I don't have enough money to hire the team. I'm doing everything. Like that's the symptom. Like what's the root cause? It's like your margins aren't there. You don't have the right kind of pricing model. You don't have the right product stack. So we actually kind of take the feeling they have and then get it down to, well, how can we trace that back to the source? And the source usually is, I don't have enough cash flow. I can't hire a team. Well, okay. Well, what are you paying them? I'm paying them peanuts. Okay. So you're getting, you know, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Like you kind of follow all these things through. It's like, so if you had the type of budget to hire an A player, would your business be different? Yes. Okay. So what business do we need to have? And I 
people that work with me are probably sick of hearing this, but I use the phrase all the time, what needs to be true for you to have the thing that you need? I need to hire the team. I need to not be doing everything. What in the business today needs to be true for you to not be doing everything? I need to have more cash flow. What needs to be true for you to have higher cash flow? I need better product. I need better blah, blah, blah. And we just keep going. It's like asking the why question. At some point, you'll get to the end of that thread. Right. And so in most of these cases where you're working with these companies, are you ultimately working to have some kind of exit strategy in most cases? Or or is it how do, how do you think about that? So I take an equity stake in every one of the companies I work with right now as a core client. And the reason for that is, again, going back to like when I came into the hedge fund industry, I was like, I'm naive. I don't know what I don't know. I am not a consultant. I also don't call myself a consultant. I am a strategic partner. And what I mean by that is like, I don't want to do a you pay for advice and I am not tied to the outcome. Yeah. Your incentives are now aligned. 100%. And it never sat well with me to say, pay me X dollars and I'll tell you what I know. It just, the alignment wasn't there. And so that's why I do it that way. So in some cases, there's three levers that we pull. So one is equity. The second is a percentage of cash flow. And the third is any kind of base cash compensation. Depending on the company, we deploy one or most multiple of those just to align interests. And some people don't want to give up equity. So we'll kind of play with those, those ratios. But effectively, that's how I have structured my own business because I want to be able to wake up and you want me waking up in the morning thinking, how do I make Patrick as much money as I possibly can today? And that was the best way I could figure out how to do it. It makes so much sense. So you, you're running or working with multiple businesses. So I'm curious how you're balancing your life. Like you've got a family. We talked about that. You've got three kids. How do you maintain equilibrium through all of this work that you're doing? Yeah. So in the beginning, I did a horrible job doing it, but I took messy action and figured out what I didn't you know to find out what I didn't know. In the beginning of this process over the last you know, go back 18 to 24 months, I was too deep in the execution part of what I was doing. So I was both kind of guidance strategy as well as execution. And I was running myself ragged, number one. And number two, I it was like this carte blanche of, you know, you're paying me a little bit, but I'm also spending a million hours kind of doing things that I shouldn't be doing. And I realized the error of my ways. And so now I really spend on average 30 minutes every week or two with these companies, 30 to 60 minutes. So it's not a huge... And by my total universe, I want to have about 20 companies that I work with over the next couple of years in this format. So it's not hugely taxing in that respect. And then, of course, I'm always giving them advice and they have access to me in other ways. So it's not a time issue. It's not like I'm burning the candle at both ends. I coach my kids lacrosse team. I put my kids to like on the bus in the morning. I pick them up in the afternoon. I have done the work 18 to 20 hours a day, eight days a week. I whether right or wrong, I've chosen to, to kind of prioritize what I do. And my metric is what's my dollars per hour. And that's how I'm accountable to my wife, which is like, if I'm spending time, it's highly leveraged time. I've just learned that I'm, and a, a great book that I'm reading right now. If you have not read it, Dan Martell's Buy Back Your Time. For anyone who doesn't know Dan Martell, Dan Martell is a phenomenal guy. He's on YouTube and others. He runs a company called SaaS Academy, and he has the number one coach to software company founders and CEOs. He's built and sold multiple businesses of his own. He just had Richard Branson, I think, on his podcast not that long ago. He wrote a book called Buy Back Your Time, and it is the playbook if you feel like you're spending too much time and burning the candle at both ends and all of us, you have to read it. It is the best book that I have read recently in this space. 
I'm going to put it at the top of my uh, audible list here to listen to because it's something I desperately need. I think it sounds, it sounds really good. I wanted to ask this one last question before we wrap up, like beyond professional advice that you're giving, is there like a piece of philosophy or worldly wisdom that you frequently are sharing with people that, that you're interacting with and working with and partnering with? Yeah, really good question. So one of the things that I didn't realize explicitly, I knew it intuitively, but somebody articulated it in a way that was really valuable for me. And I said, we were just talking, I was like, what, how do you, when you tell someone that you're working with me, what do you say? And they said, the thing I appreciate the most is that you lend your confidence in me when I need it the most. And that has stuck with me. And that, so the things I think about are, you know, phrases like you can't read the label from inside the bottle. And I am a big believer in mentors, in being surrounded by other people, because it's both, they give you insights that you can't see. How often is you've, have you gotten a piece of advice if you've ever, and it's like, oh, it was right in front of me. Like it was so simple. It was right there, but I didn't see it. The more opportunities you have for someone else to give you those insights, the faster you can move. And of course, the network effect of, of having mentors and, and a mastermind group or, or however you build that. That is what I think about a lot because everything that I've ever done, the through line has been not luck, but actively pursuing people who can give me sound insights and then going and actually following those, those insights. Yeah. And that, that whole idea leads to, you've got this idea about compressing time. So, so having those people in your life allows you to do that, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those, we actually talk about kind of paying the ignorance tax. Well, I want to make a million dollars this year, but I right now I'm making $300,000. Like, so you're paying a $700,000 ignorance tax for not knowing or not having the belief systems or the tactics to make a million dollars. Fill in your numbers, however you, you know. And I think a lot about that because it's like, okay, what I pay $20,000 to know how to make a million dollars in that case? What I pay $100,000? What I pay $500,000? Yeah, because I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. And this is where you, you know, you get into this kind of chicken and egg thing of like, oh, our mastermind's worthwhile and, you know, things like that. You know, we, uh, Alex works with Grant Cardone. I was around at that time. I mean, he paid, he paid Grant a quarter of a million dollars for an hour. And you're like, that's crazy. Except what he learned allowed him to be worth $200 million or whatever it is, you know, on paper investment. So I am now very much rooted in, I don't try to learn anything fresh. I go and find the person who can give me the insights because someone else has tried to figure this out before me. It's allowed me to move a lot faster. Yeah, I love it. It's a great place to stop here. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you, that you wanted to talk about? No, I, I think this is like, you know, for anyone who's kind of earlier in their life, number one, cash flow is king. I define financial freedom as having passive income, meaning not your active income, greater than your monthly expenses. And I share that simply, I think in the context of this, you know, hopefully the audience that's listening. I remember when I was making money early on, it was all about accumulation. What's my net worth? What do I have sitting in the bank? Think about it as an income statement item. How can I find things that pay me in my sleep? Do that and you will buy yourself financial freedom for the rest of your life. And number two, anytime you're doing anything, if you're an entrepreneur starting off, the only metric that matters until you get to about a million dollars in revenue a year is the number of offers that you make. Try to accelerate the number of no's you get and you will get yeses faster than you otherwise would believe. Don't care about any other KPI. Just go out and offer something to someone and learn the process. Because the faster you can do that, the faster you will get to success. So good. I love it. 
For our listeners that want to learn more about you, get in touch with you, what's what's a good way for them to do that? If As a thank you for listening to the show today, go to Instagram, find Tim Calise, T-I-M dot C-A-L-I-S-E on Instagram and DM me tip and I will give you a special gift for listening to the show today to hopefully help you along your way. Awesome. I will definitely include this in the show notes so they can reach out to you. So that's, I appreciate that offer. And I hope people do reach out to you and get the tip. Yeah. And website is timcalise.com. So also information at timcalise.com. Cool. I'll have all of that in the show notes. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you sharing everything you did today. I appreciate it, Patrick. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to follow Millennial Investing on your favorite podcast app and never miss out on our episodes. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.